0: Uh, precious and exceedingly great promises, that through these we may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them by means of truth. Thy word is truth. Before we open up God's word, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance on our time this morning. Father, we're so grateful that we do have this time to come together to study Your Word, to be cleansed by Your Word, as the Scripture says, to give us that opportunity to have our thinking challenged uh, in some ways profoundly, some ways that are not comfortable, because we know that we do not think the way we ought to think, but we think in ways that are too often shaped by the rebelliousness of our sin nature, and the characteristics of the worldly culture around us. So, Father, we pray that we might have objectivity as we look at your Word, that God the Holy Spirit would take it, use it in the way that Scripture says, uh, reproving us and correcting us and giving us instruction in righteousness that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, Father, we pray that you would bless this time in your Word. In Christ's name, amen. Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be continuing our study related to forgiveness. And uh, before I get started into the text, I want to talk about a couple of things. First of all, uh, we mentioned that there's this film that has been released. I have no knowledge of it. I happen to uh, turn on Rare Event Channel Surfing and happen to go past uh, TBN the other day, but they were doing sort of a commercial a preview of this of this of this video now why is this important the scripture and i teach this to every group i take to israel christianity is not a philosophy of life it is the way of thinking that is in the thinking of christ it is not divorced from scripture it is grounded in both history and geography. History relates to time. Geography relates to space. You can't go to any other religion and look at their holy books and find evidence uh, geographical, historical evidence that any of the places there actually exist. But you can go to Shiloh, uh, where we were earlier this summer, and Scott Stripling will come and tell us what they have uh, discovered over the last couple of years. And I stood at a place where I was 10 feet from where the Holy of Holies was located, where the very presence of God was located, for over 300 years. I mean that's just amazing. It was, it was phenomenal. You can go to Jericho and you can see the evidence of the burning of Jericho during the conquest and you can see, see that burn layer and where, uh, where the walls fell down. You can go to Jerusalem and you can walk the steps that Jesus walked. You can go to the place where uh, the praetorium was located, not the traditional location. And you can uh, come to understand the the dynamics of what led up to the crucifixion, not to mention going to uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and be in the location and see not where it is traditional, but um, where I believe the cross was actually located and stand there and see where it is marked. They have a church within there. That's why it's called the church of the Holy Sepulchre. And at the um uh, front of the church behind a veil, there's a table for the mass, and in the middle of that table is a cross, and you stand where the traditional site is, and you look through that gap, and you can see that that is the the location, the traditional location going back to the to the fourth century, that this is where the cross was located. And then you walk just a few feet away. And where the garden tomb was located, and if you go inside of the edicule, that is that edifice that covers where the tomb was, when they renovated the edicule for the first time in about 170 years... Uh, just uh, about, what, seven years ago, you can look through a window behind you where you're looking down at the bench where they laid the body and you can stick your head back and look through this little window and you can see part of the wall, the inner wall of that cave or the grave cave where the body was buried. For years people were told that didn't exist that the one of the Muslim rulers in around the um, 11th or 12th century just leveled it, but he didn't. And they didn't understand that until they re, until they renovated the edicule this last year. And the reason I say that is the Bible is a historical place. And one of the things I teach when I take groups there is the doc, key doctrines happened at a specific location. And you can go to those locations and A study what was revealed there. One of the most magnificent is when you go up to Caesarea Philippi and you see this massive, massive rock escarpment and realize that the scripture tells us that Jesus took his disciples to that location and he is there at Caesarea Philippi where he asked Peter, who do men say that I am? And Peter says, Well, some say you're Elijah, and some say you're John the Baptist, and Jesus says, Well, who do you say that I am? And he says, Well, you are you are the Messiah, you are the Son of God. And Jesus said, On this rock, and he's not talking about anything that Peter said, he's talking about himself. All through the Old Testament, the rock is a title for God. And it references him. And see, Jesus is is standing there with this enormous rocky escarpment behind him, using what is at hand to illustrate what he is saying. Now, all of that is to talk about why this film is important. You had two men who have exceptional credentials in the political world. Mike Pompeo, who was former Secretary of State, former head of the CIA, and many other, uh, he's been a congressman, uh, many other credentials. And then um, uh, David Friedman, who was the U.S. ambassador to Israel And during the time he was ambassador, he could not go into one of his favorite areas, mine too, which is what is referred to as the West Bank. That is really a misnomer. The West Bank of what? Well, back when Jordan had control of part of the land of Israel on the west side of the Jordan, they referred to Jordan as the left bank, and then this area that was really Israel's designated that according to the um, uh, British mandate, utilizing the language of the um, Balfour Declaration, that that belonged to, the, as, uh, was the, to be the national homeland of the Jewish people. And so uh, you go into the West Bank, otherwise known biblically as Judea and Samaria, and you see the backbone of the country. You walk a road that has been there since probably the time of Abraham. It's called the Way of the Patriarchs. Today it is Route 60. They've just built a highway along there. They didn't have all that asphalt and, uh, striped lines indicating the lanes and everything back, uh, in the ancient world. But you, very few tour groups go there. And there are places that I can never take a group. That these guys could get into, and so you and and the little bit that I've seen on on that infomercial or commercial, whatever it was the other day, they were really filming it from the Museum of the Bible, where they were having sort of the uh, uh, grand uh, grand opening for the film, and um, and because of the stat, status status of of um, uh, Friedman and Pompeo, they were able to go anywhere they wanted to go and take their film crews. And so you're going to see things and come to understand some of the geographical background, some of the places uh, where where these events of Scripture go. And some of you won't ever get a chance to go to Israel with me. And we try to go to many of these places. And this last year we didn't get to go up to Nablus which is where Shechem is, and this is where the well of Jacob is, John 4, when Jesus talked to the woman at the well. You know, we couldn't go there because of unrest that had been going on since the Holy Days. You know, we had this sort of uh um, coming together a critical storm of uh, uh, Ramadan, Resurrection Day, and for both... Protestants and then a week later for Orthodox and then Passover all happened at the same time. And so what do the, what do the Arabs do when that happens? They riot every time. That's their solution. And so all of that was continuing. So they had problems even while we were there and uh, after we were there. So I strongly encourage you. There was another Christian film that came out about two months ago called The Essential Church. I encourage you to see that. That's probably out on YouTube now. And with all this COVID stuff starting to percolate up again and people talking about masks and mask mandates and what will be closed and what won't be closed, what you need to understand is this battle that took place in Southern California because of the egregious restrictions and uh, arresting pastors who chose to meet uh, in, vi- in, in violation of the laws that were passed and the, the um, executive uh, executive decrees that came down in Southern California, all of which have been since declared unconstitutional. but there was a real battle and what you one of the things you learn in the film is that our understanding of the First Amendment And what is referred to as the separation of church and state, but what is actually the freedom of conscience for people to worship as they believe God intends them to, and that the state has no power whatsoever, no legal right to tell Christians when they can meet to worship, where they can meet to worship, or how they can meet to worship. And see, that's what was happening with these restrictions during the uh, COVID days is the uh, state was telling the church under what conditions they could meet to worship and that's a violation of the first First Amendment. And so we see these assaults. They're 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 just pecking away. Uh last week, week ago Friday, we had the governor of New Mexico issue an elect an executive order uh, to prohibit uh the legal concealed carry or even unconcealed carry, licensed unconcealed carry of, of weapons in uh, the county that Albuquerque is is in, due to some things that had happened uh, recently, but it was criminal activity. It certainly wasn't due to uh, actions taken by people who had uh, the legal legal license to carry concealed or unconcealed. So we need to be aware of these things. We need to learn about these things. We don't live in the world we grew up in. We don't even live in the world of the 90s. We live in a world where uh, there are numerous forces in Congress, in the bureaucracy, of course. It's saturated with people who hate Christianity, and they seek to destroy both of those rights that are recognized by the first and second amendment so i encourage you to uh, watch these and and um, and the fact that the the archaeological things that are shown in in the film that just just being released just gives us it, we believe the bible is true because the bible is true but it gives us a certain validation especially when we're talking uh, with unbelievers so, this morning we come together to look at our passage, Ephesians 4.32, that we are to forgive one another even as God in Christ forgave you. So, the next verse in chapter 5, verse 1, goes on to talk about the fact that we are to imitate that we are to imitate God. So forgiveness, that is, imitating God, is our focus this morning. Now, just to give you a little review and remind you of what we have seen in this fantastic chapter of Ephesians 4, is that starting in verse 25, there are a series of, of commands that are given to describe how the believer who is now in Christ... Who is now no longer part of the uh, team Gentile, as I've described, or team Jew, but we are now, as Paul says in Ephesians two fourteen to sixteen, we have been made uh, a new uh, a new man. And that new man is our position in Adam. We're described as an, in that same, almost that same verse, as a new body. New man, new body, new building, new temple. That's who we are now, with a new identity and a new way of life, a new code of conduct. And so as we go from this section in 425 down to, uh, 6, uh, 9, it emphasizes at least 37 commands. Not like, we haven't had that. In the first three chapters, there are no commands. So this is described the thinking, the lifestyle of the believer. So the focal point of these is that, uh, verse 25, Accurately translated because we 've already put off the lie, we put off the lie when we put off the old man, we put off the old man the instant we trusted in Christ, and we were entered into the new man in verses uh, or in the second, third, and fourth commands in four twenty six we 're told be angry, do not sin, do not, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Uh, 427 is a fifth command, don't give place to the devil. Uh, sixth and seventh command, steal no longer and labor. Uh, eighth command, 429, let no corrupt word proceed from your mouth. Uh, ninth command, 430, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Tenth command, 431, let these things be put away from you. And then there's a list of mostly mental attitude sins, but also sins of the tongues and a couple of overt sins. Eleventh command, 432, uh, be kind to one another by forgiving. And 12 and 5-1, be imitators of god that's our focus so here's our verse we have to think through this verse and what does it mean to forgive one another even as God in Christ forgave you. That comparison there, even as, say, has the same meaning in English as it has in the Greek. It is drawing a comparison, an analogy. It is always indicates something like a simile to indicate that there is a comparison. Now we cannot forgive exactly as God forgave because we are Uh, finite creatures who are corrupted with a sin nature and god is not but that is the pattern that is what we are to do and that is reinforced in verse one as being imitators of god now all of this flows out of these various commands as we saw last time of loving one another now i'm not going to ask for a show of hands but i would imagine that everybody here has trouble at some point or another loving one another whether they're family members or whether they are friends or whether they are just uh, the people who are behind the wheel on Houston freeways. We have trouble loving one another. We have trouble even understanding what loving one another means. And too often people think love has something to do with uh, indulgence or or um, permissiveness. And the reason I bring that up is we're going to talk about forgiveness, and a lot of people think that's what forgiveness is, that forgiveness involves some sort of indulgence or permissiveness and letting people get away with whatever it is that they have done with no consequences. And as we're going to see this morning, that is not what the Scripture teaches. So we're to love one another because we are members of one another in the body of Christ. We are to be kindly affectionate with brotherly love, Romans 12. We're to have the same mind with one another. We're to teach and admonish one another, submit to one another, comfort one another, edify one another, and exhort one another. All of these one another commands are part of our responsibility in the body of Christ. And guess what? We can't do that on our own. The the overall command is to love one another, and love is a fruit of of the spirit it is a product of the spirit galatians 5 22. the fruit of the spirit is first of all love that's the first attribute mentioned and so part of loving one another uh, really is described by all of these other uh, one another commands And that they're not options. These are not suggestions. These are commands to everybody in the body of Christ. But we can't do it on our own. We can't pull ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps and somehow act like we really love each other. It is something that is supernaturally produced in us as a result of our walk by the Spirit, our walk by means of the truth and light of God's God's Word. So as we go through all these, we have the negatives, don't judge one another, don't bite and devour one another, which is just emphasizing the maliciousness of judging one another and sins of the tongue, not provoking or envying uh, one another, not lying to one another or speaking evil of one another. And so... If we're honest, we don't do a good job of this. If we were to get a report card every six weeks, like we did when we were kids, with these character qualities, graded uh, here in Houston, we were graded plus, you know, minus, check, or plus. And, you know, that was always something that was not pleasant to get that kind of evaluation. So... That brings us to our topic, which is forgiveness. We looked at this last time, but we we need to be reminded of this. This is so important. The words that are translated forgive in the New Testament uh, are important to understand. They have two sort of meanings, two realms of meanings. One is the idea of releasing somebody from an obligation or from a debt Uh, pardoning that debt that has a financial sense to it. Uh, canceling a debt, that has a financial sense, and forgiveness. We speak about forgiving a loan. Maybe some of you have loaned money to friends or family, and you have forgiven that loan. You have just given it to them uh, either right away or eventually. And it's important to understand that the literal meaning of these terms relates to that very sound image of canceling a debt. Keep that in mind. Then we have the word that is used in Ephesians 4.32, which is charizomai, which is based on the noun charis, which is the Greek word for grace. So charizomai is clearly also used as a synonym for afiemi, and as a, with the idea of canceling a debt. It's used in a financial uh, context. But because of the idea of charis, of grace there, it's emphasizing the graciousness of forgiveness, that we're not forgiving somebody because they've earned it. We're not forgiving somebody because they deserve it. In most cases, they don't deserve it. They never will deserve it. But it is out of not our own character, which is often flawed, but it is out of the character of God. We forgive others because of who God is, not because of who we are, because it is God who has forgiven them already. So we just have to spend more time thinking about what grace really means and asking ourselves the question, Are we really gracious in the way we respond to people who are uh, totally undeserving in a small way? Maybe they are just uh, uh, committing petty grievances against us to the extreme of maybe they have uh, taken advantage of us in criminal ways to the extreme of uh, unjustified war, where they have brought a total collapse of a culture or nation or economy. I think of the people in Ukraine and what uh, people I know over there and what they are going through and all of the dreams and visions, uh, the young people who are planning a, to go into university and college, get a career, get a job, and now they're on the front lines uh, fighting in a horrific war in the southeastern part of uh, of ukraine and their parents and people who've lost their homes and lost family members and all of that and and then you think of even greater disasters such as the holocaust and the murder of over 6 million jews during the second world war how do you forgive somebody like that and so you have to we have to address those questions understanding what the scripture says about that luke 7:40 Jesus is telling a parable and he talks about a creditor who has uh loaned money to two different people but in the midst of it he says that he for- freely forgave them both that's our word charizomai so you see it it, it has that financial sense of canceling a canceling a debt And afiemi is used in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, which is addressed to Jesus' disciples, and giving them an example of prayer for that time in that dispensation, and uses the phrase, forgive us our debts. And that's the other word, afiemi. So my point is, this is a great analogy and illustration for us to understand What it means to forgive somebody is the cancellation of something that is owed. We have it used, as I pointed out last time, with redemption in both Ephesians 1.7 and Colossians 1.14. And an appositional phrase. I was talking to a longtime friend who's a pastor yesterday, and uh, he had not—I had not gone through this with him before— And pointing out the difficulty that I once had in understanding this clearly an appositional phrase, the forgiveness of sins. Well, forgiveness, if we approach it from the English side of it, uh, doesn't seem to be the same thing as redemption. So how are we to understand this? But once we come to the word study and we realize that that the words for forgiveness mean the cancellation of a debt— And that redemption is always a word that emphasizes the payment of a price. That because Christ paid the price in redemption on the cross, as a result, the debt is canceled. Now it makes perfect sense. But we have to understand the meaning of those words in the original languages. So last time I pointed out from Colossians that we have a, a, an important passage in Colossians 2:13 and 14, talking about God's forgiveness of us. Now that's really what we need to focus on because we're. Forgive one another as God, for Christ's sake, forgave us. So how did God forgive us? So this is the first kind of forgiveness, and I call it forensic forgiveness. Now, you all have watched shows on TV. You've watched lots of English mysteries about murder, and they always have the uh, medical examiner there talking about the forensic evidence. Forensic relates to that which is uh, in the courtroom. So we have a for, for for a forensic forgiveness because God is forgiving every human being at the cross. The debt is canceled. Well, why aren't they all saved? As I pointed out last time, they're not saved because they're still spiritually dead and they still lack righteousness. There are three strikes against us. Number one is there's the sin penalty that was legislated against Adam and Eve in the garden that is spiritual spiritual debt there's a sin penalty that if that's not fixed then you spend eternity in the lake of fire that is what is addressed at the cross Christ paid the sin penalty so that our debt our payment is canceled that's the first type of forgiveness that doesn't mean we're saved because a person any, any person is born spiritually dead, so they're still spiritually dead, they have to be given eternal life, they have to be regenerated, and they don't have righteousness. They, their righteousness is as filthy rags. So those two aspects come when we trust Christ, but the first is what was accomplished on the cross. And this passage is very important, and most versions and most Greek editions, they have put uh, 13 and 14 together as one sentence. And it's important to understand it. We get into the weeds a little bit with grammar, because by not understanding the grammar, we end up with... Uh, a, a confusion we read this and and it 's hard to understand exactly what is going on, but it 's very, very important so as we look at these um, aspects of forgiveness there 's forgiveness that God gives us, and there 's three kinds, and those three kinds relate to what was accomplished on the cross, and the first of them is god 's forgiveness. And, and cancellation of the debt at the cross. And we go to Colossians 2. We have uh, these verses in Colossians 2, 11 through 15, but I'm focusing just on 13 and 14. And this comes across in some significant ways. When you look at Colossians two thirteen, it says, as I've translated it, when you were dead, In your trespasses and sins. But if you actually look at the way it is often translated, it is translated more as if it is a, um, just starts off as a, as a participle with you being dead in your trespasses and sins. Well, what does that mean? Being dead. Can't we understand that in a little more of a precise way? And so the answer to that is yes, we can. But what we have here are these several uh, participles. These are the words that end in your English translation with an ing. And they are all grammatically tied as adverbial participles to a main verb. So we have to we have to look at some of these things. So in Colossians 2.13, as I pointed out last time, let me see. I redid some of these slides, but I didn't get rid of the old ones. I'm going to skip down to here. Wait a minute. Okay, we'll go here. We've, we talk about the four categories of forgiveness. And the first is this forgiveness directed toward God, where the justice of God cancels the debt of sin. So I've called that forensic forgiveness. The next one, the second one, is a forgiveness that is ours because we're positionally in Christ. At the instant we trust in Christ as Savior and we're identified with His death, burial, and resurrection... We are entered into Christ. We are now in Christ. And in that position, we are legally, positionally forgiven. The unbeliever doesn't ever have that because that's a result of trusting Christ as Savior. Then the third kind is experiential forgiveness. This is when we ask... Uh when we claim first John one nine and we confess sin. When we admit our sins to God then instantly He cleanses He forgives us and cleanses us of all sin. And then the fourth is what we're talking about relational forgiveness. But that's based on understanding what God did in the first three. So in terms of the eternal realities, at the instant of salvation when we're baptized by means of the Spirit, we are forgiven. Positionally some people confuse i'd say well if we're convi- if we're forgiven then then why do we confess sin? And I've heard some people say, well, you have to look at 1 John 1 7. 1 John 1 7 says that the blood of Christ continually cleanses us. Well, if that means we're not supposed to confess sin, why, two sentences later, does the apostle say, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness? 1 John 1 7 tells us the basis upon which that forgiveness in 1 John 1 9 uh, takes place. And when we do that, then we are uh, walking by the Spirit, we're filled by the Spirit, and we are growing and maturing as a believer. So Colossians 2.13 begins with these participles. There's four participles. Being dead, having forgiven, and having wiped out, and having nailed. Notice each of those begin, ends has a word that ends with ing. Each of these are what are called adverbial participles. That means that in the Greek, a participle can either have a an article in front of it, which means it's functioning like a noun because nouns have articles, verbs don't. If it doesn't have an article, then it's functioning as an adverb. That's one of the most simple things to learn in first year Greek. And once you determine that it doesn't have an article, which is very simple, then it's an adverb. But the trouble with that is an ad there are eight different ways that an adverb can be used, and there's nothing objective about determining how it's being used. You basically have to go through the list and decide which one best fits. Usually there may be two or three that fit, and it makes better sense. But one or two of them will really crystallize, and so that's, that's the best way. So what we have here is these participles, uh, being dead and having forgiven and having wiped and having nailed, those are our participles. Here you have, uh, he has made alive, not underlined, is our first main verb, and then, uh, Down here we have another main verb. I didn't get it highlighted. Has taken away. So that's really important. That means that these, having forgiven and having wiped, say something about his making us alive together in him. That's regeneration. So we have to understand how those relate to our regeneration. In 2.13... The main verb there is an aorist active indicative. Now, aorist tense just means it's one of the two past tenses in Greek. But that's important because to understand the participle, you have to know what the tense is of the participle. The tense of the participle is also aorist. That means that they can happen at the same time or the action of the participle precedes the action of that main verb. Now, that main verb is talking about when you trusted Christ as Savior, and at that point you were made alive together with Christ. It's talking about that period in time in your life when you believed the gospel. And is that when uh, we were forgiven? N- not in this passage. Because that word having forgiven, charizomai, is probably to be understood as something that had already taken place. Okay? So we would translate it in a causal sense that he made us alive together with him. That happened the moment you trusted Christ as Savior because, so he was able to regenerate you because something had already happened. He canceled, he had already canceled all of your trespasses. When did he do that? Read the next verse. He did it when he nailed it to the cross. That didn't happen when you were saved. That happened in AD 33, when Christ died for, the cross, for for our sins. So what this tells us is that he's able to regenerate us today because at the cross, Christ canceled the sins objectively. He paid the penalty for our sins. And the word that is used there, that I've translated canceled, is charizomai. That's the same word we have here. So we have to understand this when we're going to apply Ephesians 4.32, that you are to forgive one another as God, for Christ's sake, forgave us. When did that happen? When did that charisma, my forgiveness, take place? Well, according to this, that's the foundation that occurred at the cross when Christ paid the penalty for our sins. Did we do anything to earn or deserve that? Not at all. Is that given to us because we had the right kind of appearance or we had the right kind of skin color or we had the right uh, income? We were in the right income bracket or anything like that or that we went to the right denomination, none of that. It was because of God's grace. It was undeserved and unmerited. So Colossians 2.13 tells us that He regenerated us. He made us alive together with Him, which is when you trusted Christ as Savior, because He had already, at the cross, canceled our sins. They were paid for at the cross. Now, we get to the next verse in 2.14. It says, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. That is often a better translation is found in a variety of versions, which is the certificate of debt against us. So that really fits with understanding this concept of charismized forgiveness. It relates to the canceling of a debt. That is a debt owed by the penalty of sin. Now, the word for having wiped is really a synonym for cancel. It's the Greek word ex The word alepho refers to anointing, but it's the day-to-day anointing. When you get up in the morning and you wash your face and maybe you put on some sunscreen, you're anointing your face. That's alepho. It's a just everyday usage. The other word for anointing is uh, Christo, which is where we get the noun Christ, the anointed one. Uh, so that's just one sense, But when you add X in front of it, it changes the meaning. It has to do, and I love looking this up in the uh, lexicon, it means to blot something out, to totally erase it, to totally eradicate it or obliterate it, and then it says to remove something with no trace left. Now, that's a great way to translate this word in this context. And when we do that, it looks like this. When he obliterated the certificate of debt that was against us, leaving no trace. Isn't that great? At the cross, the, the certificate of debt against us because of sin is completely paid for. It, it's not, sin isn't the issue at salvation anymore. The issue is faith in Christ. So when he obliterated that certificate of debt that was against us, leaving no trace, uh, which was contrary to us. And then it says, and he has taken it out of the way. So this phrase right here is based on this verb, iro, and it's a perfect active indicative. Now, a perfect tense verb indicates a verb that was accomplished and, com- and finished in the past. When Jesus is on the cross, the last thing he says is that it's finished. It is completed. It's a perfect tense verb. It means it had already been accomplished. It wasn't in the process of still being accomplished. It was already accomplished. It was completed. It was finished. The payment was paid in full. And that's what this is describing by the just the grammar, the perfect tense. He took it out of the way. He completely removed it. How did he do that? He did that by nailing it to the cross. That's your last participle and it's a participle of means. So how did he take it away? How did he obliterate it? He nailed it to the cross. Now, once you understand this and the timing and the nuances of these participles, it is a very powerful promise, and it's a powerful statement for us to hold on to, that when we were regenerated, when we were uh, made alive together with Christ, we, that is possible because at the cross we were forgiven. This, our sins were taken care of. The penalty was paid graciously, charizomai, and what that meant in terms of the synonym is the debt against us, the penalty assigned for eternal condemnation, was obliterated totally so that no trace was left. So sin isn't the issue anymore. And so many people go around most of their life with a guilt complex about whatever sins they have. And all was legally taken care of at the cross uh, by Christ in 33 A.D. Now, the other thing that it, that I should note here is that He makes us alive because He had already canceled. So, the making of us alive is a realization of the second category of forgiveness that we are made. We are put into Christ at the instant of our salvation. And by our identification with Christ's death, burial and resurrection, we are now individually, positionally, legally uh, forgiven. So how did God forgive us? He canceled out and obliterated sin. So how are we to forgive one another? Same way. We cancel it out. It's not something we're going to bring up again. How do we do that? Well, we do that by turning it over to the Lord. We do that by putting it in the Lord's hands. Trouble we all have is we give it to the Lord and take it back and give it to the Lord and take it back and so on and so on. But we just put it with the Lord to him. He is the just judge. He is eternally righteous. As Abraham put it rhetorically, how shall not the judge of all the world do what is right? he's going to do what is right. He's going to take care of the unrighteousness of those who have committed these unrighteous deeds, one way or the other. We can trust God that his justice will be taken care of. Now, when God forgives us, does he remember the sin? As we move into the second category of our of our per, personal or excuse me, positional forgiveness and then third the personal forgiveness when we confess sin. In Isaiah thirty eight seventeen, Isaiah writes, indeed it was for my own peace that I had great bitterness so what are, what are those that list of sins that we saw in Ephesians? The first thing that we are to put off is bitterness, and see this is what often is the consequence when we are wronged, whether it's some minor thing like some guy cutting us off in traffic, or whether it's something major that we are been uh, maybe there's been an assault, maybe somebody has defrauded us and uh, we've lost a tremendous amount of money, maybe somebody has lied about us and. As a result of that, we've lost a job or lost a career or many, many other things that could happen where somebody has done something that is absolutely and totally wrong. Uh, they were never justified in doing what they did, but they did it, and as a result of that, we have lost something. We have been the victims of something we will say, but we 're all victims of something we 're all victims of adam 's original sin, so we can 't get sucked into the uh, victimology of the um, of the world around us. So what we are to do is recognize turn it over to God. And not give in to bitterness. But every time we think about it, this collection of sins that are mentioned in Ephesians uh, 4.31, uh, bitterness, anger, wrath, clamor, uh, these things just, just, just bubble up from our sin nature as soon as we think about what this person has done, what they seem to have gotten away with. But it appears uh, that they have done unjustified things to us, and now uh, we're angry. And so we have to now confess those sins. So your options are this. Your options are to figure out how to be gracious and forgive the other person and let God deal with it, which means you do what God is doing in these verses. You forget about it. Or you turn over your sin, control to your sin nature, and you just uh, give in to anger and sin and bitterness and all these other mental attitude sins. So when we confess sin to God, He casts our sins behind His back. He forgets about it. Now, you're very glad when God forgets about your sins. You've confessed them. And you're very glad that he did that. But that person who did you wrong, you're not so happy that God forgives them. I don't think that's grace. That's not kind. We want them to suffer, but we're very glad God lets us off. Now, that leads to one of the problems we have with understanding forgiveness is forgiveness is not permissiveness. Forgiveness is not indulgence. Forgiveness is that God is not going to continue to let that be a disruption in our relationship with him. Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. When we confess our sins, they are taken out of the way. That is the same way that we should forgive others. Well, what if they don't ask for forgiveness? There are a lot of sins you committed that you don't ask forgiveness for. You don't confess those sins. But God in His grace, because you've listed a few sins that are your common sins of arrogance and self-absorption and lying or whatever they may be, and God goes ahead and He cleanses you from all the other sins. We want to sit there and say, no, 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 they've got to come to me and, and they've got to say something. That's not gracious at all. Divine forgiveness. God completely removes the sin as a hindrance to our relationship to him. These sins are cast behind him. What we see from these verses, they are removed completely to not be brought up again. God's not going to throw them in our face again. Uh, We see that it is an act that is totally based on his character, not on um, anything else, not on their, their works. We're to imitate God. It's based on his character, not based on our character. And finally, it's an act of undeserved, unmerited kindness. It's all about grace. So as we look at these misconceptions, that it's not permissiveness and it's not indulgence, but we look at things, they're getting away with it. Look at their life. Well, you don't know. I don't know. We don't know what's going on between their ears. We don't know the kind of difficulties that they're encountering. We, we see things at a distance. But forgiveness, God's forgiveness, does not always remove consequences. God in His grace does not always bring consequences in our lives that go along with our sins. I would guess that about probably 99% of the time, we don't get the consequences we ought to have had due to God's grace. But sometimes they are there. When we look at the Old Testament, we see an example of this in the life of King David. We all should know the story about what happened when David committed adultery with Bathsheba. And after he committed adultery with her, and it was discovered that she was pregnant, he decided to cover it up. Uh, And he couldn't get Uriah, her husband, who was a general, uh, one of his mighty men, uh, to go along with his plan. He called Uriah back from the war and hoping that he would go home and enjoy some time with his wife Bathsheba, and that would take care of it. But he, Uriah had too much integrity, and he said, if my men are sleeping on the ground, I'm going to sleep on the ground. And so he slept uh, outside on the ground, outside David's palace. And so that didn't work. So David then got his uh, general, and Joab was just a real nasty, violent character, and he knew he could trust him to keep his mouth shut because he was an uncle. And so he got um, uh, Uriah to put, I mean, um, got Joab to put Uriah at the front of the battle so that Uriah would be killed in combat, sort of mur- murder by combat. And that's what happened. But that didn't escape God's notice. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan the prophet confronts, David And we know the story. Nathan comes in and he recites this parable about a rich man who has all the herds and flocks that he could, could have. And a poor man who just had one poor lamb that was his favorite and that he took care of. And uh, so the, ri- the rich man decided he needed that lamb. And so he went and stole it. And he tells this story to David. And David's response is anger. He says, uh, the scripture says, David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who's done this should surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now, then Nathan says, well, you're the man. This was all about you and confronts him with that, telling him that he has despised the commandment of the Lord. He's done evil in the Lord's sight in verse 9, and explains exactly what he has done. And then he says in verse 10, uh, now, as a result of this, the consequences. Now, God forgave David of the sin so that that did not intervene, interfere in their relationship with one another. But there were consequences. Verse 10, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes, and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son." For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. So what does David do? Well, he admits his sin. I have sinned against the Lord. Notice sin is against the Lord. Sin is against other people because sin is a violation of the standards of God, not the violation of human standards. He says, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. He's forgiven. And one consequence, according to the Mosaic law, was that if you committed adultery or conspired to commit murder, those were capital crimes. And God commuted the sentence there. But not all consequences, uh, Nathan goes on to say, because of this deed, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also who is born to you shall surely die. So what we learn in this is that first of all, sin is a violation of God's character, not human standards, and it's divine by, defined by a violation of God's character. That's why David says in twelve thirteen, "I've sinned against the Lord." And in his confession psalm, in Psalm fifty one four, he says, "Against you and you only have I sinned, and done this evil in your sight." That's confession. Only God forgives sin. God forgives sin. What somebody does to us is not maybe sin against God, but it's also just something they've done against us. But we have to recognize God's already, Christ has already paid the penalty for that sin. And God forgives. So David has for, totally forgiven. And he's been cleansed. This was his prayer in Psalm 51:10. Created me a clean heart. Don't cast me away from your presence. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. But there were consequences. And the four consequences were fourfold. That's what he said about the parable, and the rich man who stole the lamb, he said he should pay for it fourfold. Well, that's what's visited upon David. Number one, the baby died. Number two, his son Amnon raped his half-sister Tamar. Tamar is a full-blooded sister to his other son Absalom. So Absalom Sets things up and conspires using his servants to execute or assassinate Amnon. And then lastly, Amnon will lead a revolt against David... And he will, in order to assert his authority over the kingdom and that he is now the ruler, he takes all of David's wives and concubines and he takes them up on the roof of the palace and, and, and has sex with them in public to demonstrate he's the king. So that's the exact fulfillment of God's punishment on, on David. So what we see here is that forgiveness is not permissiveness. Forgiveness does not mean you have to still pal around with somebody. Uh, that has done some horrible things perhaps to you. But forgiveness is you put it in God's hands. You're not going to get involved in bitterness and anger and resentment and that let that shape your mental attitude, but you're going to turn it over to the Lord, which frees you to be kind and gracious to the person who doesn't deserve it any more than we deserve it. This is what it means to forgive as God forgave. We turn the person over to God for discipline and or judgment. Second, we don't necessarily have to return things to their previous status quo. Sometimes we just can't do that, but we don't get involved in mental attitude sins. And that's the third point. No no bitterness, anger, resentment, gossip, slander, maligning, none of that. We just turn it over to the Lord, and then we're free to be kind and gracious and generous uh, to the other person. So this is the point that we see here. We still have a couple of other things to study. We have to go to the Gospels to understand the answer to Peter's question, how many times should I forgive somebody? And we have a few other things to see on forgiveness so that we can understand this. But it is part of our spiritual life, and by failing to do so, it hinders and limits our spiritual growth. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be reminded of your forgiveness to us and how how incredible it is that you have forgiven us because of what Christ did on the cross. He paid that penalty. You gave your son as a free gift in order to accomplish this. And that salvation is not based on our works. It's not based on our ability to forgive others. It's not based on any human factor. It's just based on what Christ did on the cross. He paid the penalty in full. And because he paid the penalty, the debt was wiped out that certificate of debt, that indictment against us for Adam's original sin was nailed to the cross so that that's not the issue. The issue is whether or not we trust in Christ as Savior. So, Father, anyone who is listening this morning, here this morning, or listening online or in the future, that they might come to understand that, that eternal life, that regeneration that redemption is applied to us when we trust in Christ as our Savior and His death on the cross as our substitute, and that the instant we do that, we are made alive again, we are given, are imputed, Your eternal righteousness, Your perfect righteousness, and we have everlasting life. Father, for the rest, we pray that we might come to understand what it means to forgive one another as You, for Christ's sake, have forgiven us that we might exhibit your grace and exhibit as trophies of your grace all that you have provided for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.